to the end of that chapter. When we began this series back in January of this year, we uh, subtitled this book, The History of the Ongoing Ministry of Jesus. And the reason we did that was because this book is actually the second of, in the Greek, the original language, the second of a two-part work that starts with the Gospel of Luke, which covered the earthly-based ministry of Jesus, and finishes with the book of Acts, which covers the heavenly-based ministry of Jesus, as it is carried out through the work of the Holy Spirit, the agency of the Holy Spirit, as He uh, indwells and empowers and impels the people of God into the world for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, at that time, we also noted that uh, what this, the period of time that this book is covering is roughly about 30 years, from about 33 to 64 AD. And uh, within that uh, brief time frame, we see a summary of the church's expansion, both geographically and geometrically, starting with its establishment in Jerusalem and then pushing outward to Judea and Samaria and then on toward the ends of the earth. Thus far is in our studies, we've witnessed the first stage of that expansion, the church's uh, growth and establishment in Jerusalem. That's been from like chapter 1 up through chapter 6, verse 7. And at that point, chapter 6, verse 7, the clock uh, slowed down a little bit as we got a detailed account of the speech and the arrest and the stoning of Stephen, who was an early preacher of the gospel. And the reason for the change in tempo and for the additional attention given to the account of Stephen is because the death of Stephen at the hands of the Jewish authorities marked a real turning point in the history of the church. From that point forward, we see a, a really a marked increase in the level of persecution that the church endured, which in the providence of God, interestingly enough, that persecution turned out to be the catalyst, the circumstance that God used to expand his church's mission even further. If you've ever watched some of the older videos of the, uh, the old Saturn rockets going into flight, you'll see uh, from the liftoff, with, they'll take off from the ground with these stage one, massive stage one engines that takes the rocket up to a certain height and then they jettison those engines, engines and then the stage two boosters kick in and take it on to a whole new level. The persecutions following Stephen's death function something like that, like a second stage booster that propelled the church's mission further and further beyond Jerusalem. Simultaneously, in the midst of recounting the martyrdom of Stephen, we have seen the appearance of a new character on the scene, uh, Saul, who is a, was a very zealous Jewish man who started out as an enemy of the faith. But God opened his blinded eyes to see the truth about Jesus and began preparing him and uh, positioning him to, uh, for a very important task, which was to be the lead apostle in the church's mission to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. And then along with all of that, we've seen how God prepared the church theologically for this expanded mission, as we read about Peter's encounter with Cornelius, a God-fearing but not yet converted Gentile. God showed Peter through a vision that the cultural peculiarities that had for a time served their purpose in distinguishing Israel as set-apart holy people, in particular their food laws. Those things had done their job. And then had now reached uh, 
sort of an expiration date, if you can put it that way, in the, in the providence of God. And so a new phase of God's kingdom work was about to commence, a phase in which God was going to deliver the church from its Jewish birth clothes, and so begin to fulfill in earnest the promise made to Abraham way back in the early chapters of Genesis, that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. What we saw in Acts 10 in the first part of chapter 11 was an important step in that process. As those things, those cultural and social distinctives that had formerly served as a barrier, as a wall of separation between Jews and non-Jews, those were all torn down by God himself, which is to say they were torn down by the very one who had placed them there in the first place. So again, at the risk of being redundant, let me summarize all of that even more succinctly. What we've seen so far in this study is the church's mission established in Jerusalem. Now we're shifting gears, and Luke is going to chronicle for us the church's mission beyond Jerusalem. And as a preparation for that, he sets up the rest of the story by telling us three things, namely. He shows us the situational catalyst, which was the persecution of the church. He records for us the selection and preparation of the one who would lead the expanded mission. And then he gives us a biblical theological undergirding that would fuel the mission with accounts about Peter and Cornelius and the vision he had. That's where we left off last week in Luke's words at the end of the passage. Woody took us through, sum up the situation quite well. Luke eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also. God has granted repentance that leads to life. As one scholar has noted, the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's mission is to be Luke's main theme for the rest of the book of Acts, starting from chapter 13. Prior to that, however, there's just a few more things that Luke wants us to see by way of preparation. Those things are going to be the focus of this week's sermon and, Lord willing, next week's sermon So that's where we are. That's how we got here. Before we dive into that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, help us to see and retain good things in these words before us this morning. Help us to receive them as the completely reliable truths that they are. Help us to be humble before you and to take away only those things that are in accordance with what you intended for us to have. Which means... Among other things, please get me out of the way, Father. I demonstrate again the power of these living words as they take root in our own hearts and are then imperfectly but surely played out before a watching and listening world. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. As we take what's going to necessarily be, we're covering large sections of material, it's going to be a cursory look at this passage. There are four movements I want us to make note of. You've got a very uh, rough outline in your bulletin there. Maybe you can make use of that. But the first thing I want you to see is how persecution leads to expansion and proclamation. We've talked about that as the catalyst that God used. Here we see one particular example of that played out in Acts 11. 19 to 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch 
spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. As we've already seen early on in the growth and establishment of the church in Jerusalem, one of the leaders in the church, this guy named Stephen, was very involved in showing and telling the gospel. And as a result, he was very quickly identified as a troublemaker by the local religious authorities. And so one day, after a very powerful and convicting sermon, he was arrested and ultimately ended up being, uh, losing his life. And so he really became the first Christian martyr after Jesus, of course. The first person to die as a direct result of his faithfulness to God and to the gospel. So Stephen's executed. This great persecution of other Christians starts and people begin to scatter all about the place. And as the believers sought safety and spread out and went into Samaria and Judea, they carried their Christian convictions and professions with them. And as a result, everywhere they went, these little sort of brush fires of Christianity started to spring up as people heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And please don't miss... The significance of this moment in particular, as Peterson observes, this is the first detailed account of evangelism that's actually being carried out just by ordinary believers. Up to this point, we've seen various leaders engaging in it and preaching, but here it's the people in the pew, so to speak, who are clearly being used by God to expand the church in a significant way. The other thing to note from these verses is that in addition to going to regions in the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem, these persecuted believers began to go even further to various Gentile populations, such as Cyprus, which we'll say more about in a couple weeks, uh, Phoenicia, which is where modern-day Lebanon is, and Antioch, which, as one scholar writes, was third among the cities of the Roman Empire, right behind Rome and Alexandria, had a population of about half a million people. So again, persecution led to expansion and then proclamation. And please note not only the fact of the proclamation, but the pattern of the proclamation. The passage talks about how most of the Christians, as they fled Jerusalem, as they landed in these various cities, they went to the Jews in those places and began sharing the gospel with them. But the passage then qualifies that statement by noting that some went beyond that in Antioch and shared the gospel with Hellenists, which, given the context in this instance, almost certainly refers to non-Jews of Greek extraction. Now, why is, why is this important? Well, if you have been with us for the past few weeks, you would have heard Woody taking us through some passages that were preparatory, that gave us a preview of the coming expansion of this gospel mission into the Gentile world. We saw Philip's witness to the Ethiopian eunuch, followed by Peter's ministry to Cornelius. And then all of this was followed by God's seal of approval, this second outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as as referred to as the, the Gentile Pentecost, which was deliberately intended to mirror the events of Acts 2, and and which was God saying, essentially, this is me doing all this. I'm behind all this. I'm endorsing all this. I'm driving this. And so with those events, the ministry to the Gentiles was confirmed. But here's the thing. It's still early days. The idea that God's kingdom mission included the Gentiles was still very much hot off the press. And because it's still, you know, new news... It was not yet widely embraced or pervasively practiced in the church. But it was starting to take hold. And we see some of those efforts 
And the believers here, who, when they get to Antioch, they didn't just go to the Jews, but went amongst the Hellenists in, uh, in Antioch with noticeable effect, as a great many of them turned to the Lord. Now, before going on to the next movement in this passage, there's two things I don't want you to miss in what we've seen so far in the word, the verses we've looked at so far. Uh, the first one's this. Please notice the language that is used to describe this preaching that was going on in Antioch. It's right there in verse 20. As these ordinary believers shared the good news, it says, they went about preaching the Lord Jesus. Now that may not seem like a huge observation to make, to, to pull, that, pull that out and highlight it, but I, I think it is. I think that's a wonderful description. Preaching the Lord Jesus, and an important one. All right, think about this with me. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. They were telling their listeners about a person. They were introducing these people to a man who was also God, who was also their friend and their Savior and their Redeemer, who came into this world and he lived and he died and he lived again. Luke doesn't describe them as going about preaching doctrine, not that there's anything wrong with doctrine. To be sure, the good news about Jesus is doctrinal in nature. All good preaching is inherently doctrinal in nature. But I think it's important that the characterization of what these believers are doing here is, first of all, personal and relational. And I think that's an understanding and emphasis that we ought to take to heart ourselves. We think about our own task, our own privilege of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Because when we share the gospel, what we're doing fundamentally is what I've just described here. We're making an introduction. We're introducing our friends and family to another person, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're telling people that there is someone that we have come to know that we want them to know. And beyond that, we want them to understand and love and trust and ultimately entrust themselves to as we have. With reference to the previous comments, there are certainly all kinds of doctrines that are part and parcel of knowing the Lord Jesus. Knowing Him and what He did and why flowing out of that story are all kinds of important truths like faith and repentance and justification and sanctification. Right? Those are great truths. They're foundational truths. But they are connected to and they flow out of the person and the story of Jesus, which itself comes out of a bigger story about a creator and his creation and his creatures and what went wrong and what he's doing about it, what he did about it. And what he did about it was Jesus. And especially in this day and age, it is vitally important in my view that we communicate to people who don't know the Lord Jesus that we aren't in the first instance trying to get them to sign up for and endorse a set of ideas or a theological system. We're introducing them to a person and a relationship. And in so doing, we are connecting them to a story that is bigger than them. A story that they have already been written into whether they know it or not. It's a story that is so big that it encompasses all of time and every bit of space and which incorporates every event, wonderful, terrible, and otherwise, and actually weaves them all together 
into this tapestry that we call history, which is the outworking of God's plan and purposes. When we preach Jesus Christ, we are introducing them to the person who is in the center of that story. And we're inviting them through Jesus to see how their own life is part and parcel of God's greater story. I mean, how many people do you know who, who feel lost and have no idea where or how they fit in? And would love to know, would love to know that there is a story and they're actually in it. So at the end of the day, when we introduce people to Jesus, we're not just giving them interesting information. We are offering them God's forgiveness and mercy and grace and adoption into his family and friendship and hope and worth and purpose through the Lord Jesus Christ. The other thing I don't want you to miss here is the cooperative nature of what's going on with these refugee evangelists in Acts 11. As the passage says, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. It was a great number that believed because they were amazingly gifted preachers. Actually, that's not what it says, is it? It says the hand of the Lord was with them. That's that's the why. That's the because. Again, an important reminder for us all today in our own ministries of gospel proclamation. Which is the responsibility of everybody in this room. But you and I need to remember that the evangelistic enterprise is cooperative in nature. If God is not in it, then nothing will happen. Because only God can change hearts. Only God can open uh, blind eyes and deaf ears. At the same time, if the people of God do not open their mouths to the life-changing gospel, it will not be heard. As Paul says, asks rhetorically in Romans 10, how will they hear without a preacher? And the answer is they won't. And he adds, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And please note, it's not because God can't work without us. He obviously can work without us and does. But he's chosen not to. He's chosen for reasons that remain a mystery to us to incorporate us in all of our frailty and fallenness into the outworking of his saving purposes. And that's a great privilege and a great responsibility. The second thing I want you to see follows on the first. Not only did persecution lead to expansion and proclamation, but please note that proclamation led to conversions and called for confirmation. The report of this, which is the the great response of the gospel to the gospel in Antioch. It came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. The response to the preaching of Jesus Christ in Antioch was so strong that the Jerusalem church sent a representative to check things out and to report back to them what he saw. And it it wasn't that the Jerusalem church was being territorial about this thing. It's just that they wanted to be responsible. They wanted to make sure that these things that were going on in the name of Jesus were actually, in fact, worthy of that label. And Barnabas was the perfect guy to send. I mean, this is the guy, as we're told in Acts 4, was originally named Joseph. 
but renamed by the apostles and called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because that's the kind of guy he was. He was a refreshing, encouraging, generous soul. As further evidence, you need to remember that this was the guy who stepped into the gap, who had the spiritual discernment to see that what was going on with Saul slash Paul was a genuine work of God. And so when all the other disciples were still kind of iffy about this guy who previously was hating and murdering Christians, but now was one, when everybody else was still kind of unsure what to think about Saul or not knowing what to do with him, Barnabas steps in and puts his own reputation on the line by endorsing him, taking steps to ensure his acceptance and welcome among the believers. This is the guy the Jerusalem church sends to check things out. And when he gets there, He sees straight away what is going on. It's it's the real thing. It's the real thing. And he's glad. And just think about that for a moment. Think about what Barnabas' gladness would have involved. Here he is amongst a group of Gentile believers, that is non-Jewish Christians, who no doubt had not adopted any of the Jewish practices like circumcision. And likewise, would not have observed any of their other socio-cultural distinctives regarding foods and clean and unclean, clean and unclean things, and special days and things like that. None of that would have been going on. And yet, Barnabas was able to look at them, see the evidence of the Spirit's presence and work within them and through them, and and not make a big deal out of these lesser things. And this same Spirit is seen in the instructions, the encouragements He gives them: stay faithful. Stay focused. Stay faithful. Stay focused. Noticeably absent are any instructions regarding their adopting any optional Jewish standards. And Barnabas' response here is instructive for us as well. His generosity toward those who were clearly converted, but also dissimilar to him in some aspects of life and practice. That generosity is both commendable and worthy of imitation. We too ought to be willing when we see the evidence of God's working outside our own circles to rejoice in what God is doing. Even when everything is maybe not being done as we would do it. Maybe not every I is dotted and every T is crossed. Don't get me wrong. I I affirm and I support our denomination, Presbyterian Church of America. I embrace Reformed theology for very definite reasons. Reasons that I would defend vigorously because I think they are deeply rooted in the scripture. But we should be under no illusions that our tiny, minuscule slice of the Protestant church has cornered the market on God's spirit and God's work in this world. There's plenty going on outside of our church and our denomination. Thank God that we can be grateful for and appreciative of The third movement is this. I want you to see not only how persecution leads to expansion and proclamation and how proclamation led to conversion and a need for confirmation, but also confirmation by Barnabas led to the recruitment of Saul. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So here's Barnabas, his trusted leader in the early church. He's sent by the Jerusalem church to Antioch in the aftermath of all that's going on there to confirm the legitimacy of the work. And he gets there. He's very encouraged. He returns some encouragement to them. And then what does he do? 
he leaves town. He goes to Antioch. He finds the Apostle Paul. Things are going great, but he comes into town. And, and he, he sees that there are people are coming to Christ in droves. And he runs out and he goes to find Paul as quickly as he can. Why does he do that? Now, I have no explicit scriptural statement to confirm this. But it seems to me this is what's going on. Barnabas went looking for Saul, who is now Paul, because he was humble. Because Barnabas was a humble man because he was more interested in advancing God's kingdom than he was in building his own resume. First thing about his humility, Barnabas was clearly a gifted, capable man. But I think as gifted as Barnabas was, uh, he had seen Paul in action. And he knew what was at stake in Antioch. And he wanted the best man for the job, the right man for the job. Further, he knew that God had specifically set Paul apart to lead the mission to the Gentiles. And so, and this is the second thing, because he cared very little, if at all, about his own resume, cared more about God's kingdom, he was happy to go and find Paul and bring him into the picture in Antioch and then to step back and become the assistant while Paul took the lead. As he should have. So Barnabas brings Paul into the picture and they spend a year building up the believers there, which accomplished two things. Established the believers, but it also established Paul in his role. Barnabas knew exactly what he was doing. Let me tell you, we need more of that sort of humility and vision in the church today. The celebrated conductor, Leonard Bernstein, I know you've probably heard this before, but I'm going to say it anyway. He was asked more than once, to, was asked once to name the most difficult instrument to play, and he said this. He said, the most difficult instrument to play is second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. If we have no second fiddle, guess what? We have no harmony. Barnabas understood that. He understood that sometimes the most godly thing you can do is get out of the way. And take a support role. Let someone else lead the charge so that you can provide the harmony while they provide the melody. Because it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about the king. It is about the kingdom. And a day is coming when the first, second, third, fourth, and whatever chair will no longer care what chair they were in. They'll only be grateful to have had any seat at all in God's orchestra. The final movement I want you to see is this. Please notice not only persecution led to expansion and proclamation, proclamation led to conversion and confirmation. Confirmation by Barnabas led to the recruitment of Paul, but finally, please notice, recruitment led to consolidation and even further confirmation. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we've just seen, you know, after Barnabas sees what's going on and and he sees that it's a genuine work of God amongst the Gentiles. He wastes no time in making sure that the best man for the job is there. And then they take together take a whole year 
working to establish and ground these new believers in their life as children of God. And then what might seem like, at first, a rather abrupt change of channel in the passage, we're suddenly told about these prophets that show up out of the blue in Antioch. Well, who were these guys? We'll say more about prophets and prophecy uh, in the New Testament era uh, a little further along the way. But at this point, let me just say this. These, they were itinerant preachers. Uh, these are, uh, these are uh, men who traveled around preaching the gospel and also um, at times engaging in prophetic, futuristic declarations, being led by God's Spirit to do so. One of them in particular, a man named Agabus, who's going to make another appearance in Acts 21, he stands up and he prophesies or foretells that the time is coming and there's going to be a famine over all the world. Now, please note, Luke, the author of Acts, please note that his reason, I think, for including this story about the prophets, it's not so much concerned with the prophecy themselves or even the famine that was prophesied. The reason for noting this event, this prophecy, is this. So that we could see how these young but growing Gentile believers in Antioch responded to the famine. So how did they respond? In a word, wonderfully. Actively, concretely, compassionately, generously. And the exhibition of that sort of generosity confirmed even further the genuineness of what had happened to them. In other words, it demonstrated that their hearts and lives really had been invaded by the Holy Spirit of God, whose fruits were working their way out in their lives, and especially in the fact of their selfless, sacrificial generosity toward the church in Jerusalem. Think about that, right? That's to say, toward a Jewish culture that typically treated them as Gentiles, as the, as the scum of the earth. And yet here these Gentiles are, giving away their possessions for the sake of these Jewish believers. Let me tell you something. There are a few things more telling about a person's heart, where a person's heart is, than in the area of their possessions. And how they hold on to them. Or not. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 6, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in the steel. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is a profound truth, and the converse is equally true. Where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Why does Luke record this for us? Because just at the, as at the beginning when the Spirit first came at Pentecost and one of the immediate results was believers selling their possessions to help and support and take care of one another, now that the Gentile Pentecost has happened, we see evidence of a similar generosity. And in sending their treasure in that direction of brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, they showed that that was indeed where their hearts were. And they were loving God by loving His people for whom his son died. One writer wraps it up like this. He says, in some, we see the emergence here of another key community engaged in mission, instruction, discipleship, and caring for other communities in need. 
Word and deed are side by side, and this could hardly do a better job of showing a vibrant church at work performing the essential tasks of a community so visibly that outsiders note who its members are. You know, there's a, a, almost a passing comment here in the passage that's in Antioch where the believers were first described as Christians. They weren't self-described as Christians. They're described by people looking on from the outside, watching this community live. And they figured it out. These people are with Jesus. They talked about him. They imitated him. They worshipped him. The people on the outside looking in, these are like Christians. Oh, that we might be so recognized for similar reasons. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please, by your Spirit's ongoing work, confirm in our own hearts the truths here that we must need it both as a church as a whole uh, and individually uh, you can apply your truth as uh, as a surgeon does uh, to cut away things that should not be there to encourage and heal and build up and strengthen to reshape us and mold us and so we ask that you would do that and um, we look forward with confidence to seeing how you'll work that out we thank you for your kindness to us in the gospel and your continued kindness in working out the implications of that truth in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We now have a time where we take up an offering to support uh, various ministries, uh, this church and also 30-something different ministries through this church, individuals. Uh, we typically have a, a show uh, a slideshow or PowerPoint presentation running in the lobby that shows us the kind of people in groups and ministries that we're supporting. And um, as you come here week by week, I'd encourage you to take a moment to look at that and see who some of these people are and some of these ministries are. We'll take a moment now to receive these tithes and offerings. If you're visiting for the first time, we're not asking you to give. We're glad that you're here. Uh, this is for those who uh, know the Lord Jesus, who want to support this work and, uh, and show their, by their own generosity the evidence of God's work in their hearts.